Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the show. We are, you know, we kind of set up chapter 11 of Revelation last time, so we're going to be hitting into that. But uh, one quick thing I need to say though, Rob, I know that when we record, you like to reach across the table and hold my hand many times for comfort. Uh, but but don't do that because I have COVID this week. So no touching. You know, I, I know it's going to be weird for you. It's a coping mechanism to hold hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No comment. I actually have nothing to say. Can you believe that? It's, <laughs> you're welcome. That's uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, uh, it's mean, also I, normally if you give me a few minutes, I'll have some response that and well, I'll just edit it back in. We call that the George Costanza effect. It's the thing that you you think of when you get outside. Oh, I should have said this. Also, yeah. today is Hanukkah. We should have been doing John uh, chapter 10 today. So happy Hanukkah. Happy Feast of Dedication. Ah. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 11, which has, I guess it's funny. We are talking about the temple, a different kind of dedicated temple here. But uh, chapter, uh, I don't know, are we just going to st- start in chapter 10 or is there anything from, uh, or start chapter 11 or is anything from last week that we want to uh, look at? To, you know, because you already kind of set it up. You said chapter 11 is kind of the central yeah. message from the book, right? Right. Yeah. This is the center of the book. This is the climax of the story itself. Uh, obviously, the ultimate climax is the New Jerusalem coming down in Revelation 21 and 22. But as far as the second narrative is concerned, this is the center of it. Okay. And so this is the section that's happening between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. We're still in the, you know, we, we think of things in terms of chapter divisions. But when John is writing this, he's this is the section that's just describing the sixth the, the trumpet. So uh, why is it important that there's this interlude where it's between the sixth and seventh trumpets? Yeah, so we didn't really discuss that uh, last week specifically. What we should have at this point in the narrative, what we said is this: well, at the end of the sixth trumpet, all of a sudden now we're expecting the seventh trumpet to sound. And the beginning of chapter ten, it's like it doesn't. The seventh trumpet doesn't sound. Instead, there's chapter ten, verse one. There's another strong angel. And he had in his hand a scroll, which was open. We're like, oh, there, there's the scroll. And so what we have here, again, is, a, is what's called an interlude. An interlude is a, a break in the narrative between this, in this instance, between the sixth and the seventh uh, trumpet, just like there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal. So you defined what an interlude is. Uh, so besides, you know, the fact that they interrupt a story, what is the importance of the interludes here? Uh, well, so one of the importances, of course, they're describing the people of God. And in the midst of the series of seven seals or in the midst of the seven trumpets, whatever it may be. But the other thing is they both actually relate to the prayers of the saints. So back in chapter eight, verses three and four, we discussed a while back that in in the end of the seventh seal and the beginning of the seven trumpets, there was this insertion about the prayers of the saints. So this, uh, let me go ahead and read it actually. Revelation chapter eight, um, verses three and four. It says, another angel, verse three, came up and stood at the altar having a golden censer, much incense was given to him so he can add to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. So what the prayers of the saints appear to be specifically is that cry of the martyrs under the fifth seal. How long, O Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? God, when are you going to bring justice to the world? And so what you see in the seven seals and seven trumpets in the midst of this, these two accounts is the prayers of the saints go up before God. And so God's going to answer their prayers. What we find out is it's actually not through judgment. This is the the typical reading that we've discussed before, 
The common reading is, oh, God's going to bring wrath and vengeance on the world for, you know, you did this to my people, so I'm going to wipe you out. Uh, and then the nations, well, they still don't repent, but bummer for you. Actually, that's not what happens, as we've discussed in plenty of detail now. The wrath that you see in the seals and trumpets is what happens when nations are in power. And the end of chapter 9 revealed to us that it doesn't bring repentance. So the key is, when you're going to bring justice, O Lord, when you're going to bring your kingdom to the earth, when you're going to redeem the nations, and what we know so far is it's not through wrath. Well, what's the answer then? And that's what chapter 11 is going to do. All right. mm. So how about if we do this? Let's go ahead and read uh, 11 verses 1 through 13 if you want if you want to do that for us, Vinny. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished up their testimony, uh, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them uh, burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God had entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Dun-dun, right. there's our answer. Right. We ended chapter 10 with John being commissioned to prophesy. We referenced back to Ezekiel. Uh, and, and you're saying that the account of the two witnesses is, is the content of his prophesying, right? Yes, exactly. In reading this you know, chapter uh, yesterday and today's re reading it and rereading it, there seems to be so much imagery in here. Mm -hmm. uh, just even the fact of measuring rod. I mean, in our, in our modern way of thinking, I'm, you know, we, we're doing a lot of stuff on our new house. It's so we measure things all the time to see how much we could get in there. Like I'm thinking, why is he using like a tape measure? Like what is the point of doing this? Are they going to build an overhang? Uh, <laughs> help, help us unpack what this even means. Okay. Uh, so a measuring rod uh, is a prophetic act. A prophet is told to go measure something because it's going to signify that the thing that which is measured is under God's sovereign care or sovereign protection. So you'll see this in Zechariah chapters one and chapter two. And so the idea that the temple of God, the altar and those who worship in it, which, and I won't get into the details here at all, all three of those actually designate persons. They don't designate things. The temple of God in the New Testament, that expression uh, is used explicitly for the body of Jesus, destroy the temple of God in the three days I'll raise it up and or the people of God, the church. You are the temple of God, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. So they're measuring the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it are all references to measuring of people. And the implication is 
is the divine protection of that which is being measured. Hmm. You've mentioned that you think that the the two witness account is like central to the book of Revelation. Uh, why? Because it, it, you know, it's not like we're yeah. seeing these guys as, as doing this huge thing throughout the, uh, you know, the course. These aren't the central players in the book. Yeah, they, and they are. Yeah, that, that right. it, it doesn't it might not appear that way, but but they are. So we have what we discussed before, and that is starting in chapter four, you have the second narrative, the second story. Remember the first story? John's on Patmos. Mm-hmm. He sees a vision of Jesus, told to write the seven messages, and he writes the seven messages. And, and real quick, story. that reference dozens of episodes ago when we talked about yeah. the outline and the structure of the book, and that's what you're referring to is these yeah. new scenes that happen, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So the new scene, then all of a sudden, chapter four, John's taken up to heaven. Hey, come up here. And he goes up into heaven, and he sees God sitting on a throne. And so obviously that signified that God's in command. He's, he's the sovereign. He's on the throne, not Caesar. But what we see at the end of the book of Revelation is that the throne of God comes down to heaven, from heaven to the earth. Heaven and earth become one. So one of the narrative questions that we have to ask is, why is God waiting? You know, what's happening? Why, why the delay? How long, oh Lord, right? Until you bring that throne down. What we find out as we keep reading is, well, the, the answer to how long, O oh Lord, in chapter um, six was, well, not everyone who's been killed for the gospel is gonna, has been killed for the gospel yet. And what we realize that means is that people being killed for the gospel, Christians, uh, witnesses for the gospel, is the means to which God brings the redemption of the nations. So that, that second narrative thread was that the nations will walk by the light of the, of the new Jerusalem. So we'll get there someday, chapter 21 and 22. The nations are flowing into the city. So as we read the narrative here, we're seeing that the nations are opposed to God's people. In fact, they actually stand opposed, send gifts to one another when they kill the two witnesses. So at some point in time, the nations become redeemed. And that becomes the, the, the key in terms of the narrative. How are the nations going to get redeemed? And because the nations are redeemed, then, of course, the kingdom of God comes down from heaven to the earth. The throne of God and the earth become one. Heaven and earth become one. There you go. End of the story. What we've seen so far is, they don't get redeemed by wrath. And, and I, I wouldn't say wrath in the sense that God's inflicting it, but the wrath they suffer as a result of human powers. God's delay means human beings remain in power. They bring deception, war, famine, and bloodshed. And guess what the nations do? They call the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Uh, and then, of course, they bring destruction upon the, the cosmos, the earth and the sea and the rivers and springs of waters and the sun, moon, and the stars and the seven trumpets are all in chaos and demonic beings are waging war. And yet they still did not repent. Revelation 9, uh, 20 and 21. They did not repent of the work of their hands. So what's going to bring them the repentance? And the answer is it happens here in this particular account. So the narrative flow of this great overarching theme, like how are the nations going to get redeemed? And it it seems to reach a climax here. And then the other reason, which I won't reiterate too much here because we've done it plenty of times, is the centrality of the scroll. We know that the scroll is central to the story. John weeps over it. Uh, Jesus is the one who opens it, and he's worthy to open it because he was slain. And then it's finally open, and then John eats it, and then John's still now told, now, now go prophesy. There you go. The content to that prophecy is the two witnesses, which we know because he begins in chapter 11, verse 1, with this prophetic act of measuring the temple. There you, this has to be central for both of those reasons. It answers the questions how the nations are redeemed, and it's the content of the scroll. Hmm, okay. 
Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. One question that people might have wanted to lead with, because yes, yes. we've been talking about these two witnesses, and I think from a popular standpoint, Mm -hmm. This becomes such a huge hang up on who these people literally are going to be. And I know there's probably, we could even probably say dozens of theories out there yes. on, on who these people are. So is this literally talking about, um, you know, an Enoch, Elijah, Moses, Elijah, Peter, and Paul, uh, future people, uh, you know, if, if you take a futurist view, especially in a dispensational type of idea. So I, I, where, where do you land? Is there a scholarly consensus on this? Yes. And where do you come down on? Yeah, there is a scholarly consensus on this. Um, I actually have a three-page footnote detailing all the different views in the history of the church. A footnote of the two witnesses are. Uh, various commentaries and various, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Peter and Paul, the list is on. I can't think of all of them right now. It's been like 10, 15 years since I've looked at that list. But uh, it's extensive in terms of all the different speculations mm. as to who it was, uh, who the two witnesses are. And the answer is it's none of the above. Mm. Right? The first problem is, they're not two individuals, and, that's, and I'll explain that in just a, in a minute. And we need to ask the question of, you know, why are they two? Remember, the numbers have significance in the book of Revelation. And sometimes there's a literal significance, like there are actually are seven churches. But the primary significance is actually in the symbolic meaning of the number seven. So seven represents totality or completion or fullness. So there are seven churches because they represent all of Christianity, and we discussed that when we looked at the seven messages in chapters two and three. The secondary meaning is it's seven because there actually are seven churches. All right, that's fine. But the primary meaning is the symbolic significance. So same thing when we go here. There are two witnesses because they're actually two individuals. No, there are two witnesses. Well, the question, I guess, let me ask it to you, Vinny. What is the significance of the number two in the scriptures? I would think back to Torah and, uh, yeah. on the account of two or more witnesses exactly. for a testimony to be faithful. Incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 19, 5. The idea in the, in the Deuteronomic law was for any capital crime to be uh, imposed, there has to be two eyewitnesses, two or three eyewitnesses. And that two or three in, in the Deuteronomic law becomes two throughout the biblical story. So remember, you, have, you know, Jesus sending the disciples out, uh, he sends the 12 out, and then he sends the 70 out uh, in Luke 9 and then Luke 10, and he sends them out in pairs. That's this biblical principle of two witnesses. And the, and the number two testifies to the trustworthiness of the message, the, the trustworthiness of their witness, that they are, that, in other words, it's not two because there actually are two of them. It's mm -hmm. two because their witness is trustworthy and accurate. Hmm. Now, we know uh, specifically then, as we look at the, at, at I'm trying to figure out, well, who are these two, these two witnesses? The answer is what well, says in verse four, that they're the two lampstands. Which we, it's already been identified that this is the church, right? Or exactly, church. that they're churches. I know it's, yeah. We know from chapter one, and then obviously chapters two and three, that lampstands equate to churches. So there's your first indication. They're not individuals, they're lampstands, and they, rep they represent at least maybe like two of the churches. So the question then becomes, well, are they two of the seven churches? Like, which two are they? 
or are they two churches? Because the significance of two is that their witness is trustworthy and accurate, not because they're only two of the seven churches. No, it's that they're all the churches because they're lampstands, but they're referred to as two lampstands because their testimony is actually is trustworthy. Uh, another reason why we know that they're not individual uh, is chapter 11, verse 7, which we'll get into a little bit, especially in the weeks to come. It says that the beast wages war against them. You don't wage war against two people. Mm-hmm. Right? And the beast, of course, is the empire. And you know, Rome's going, let's go get our mounted troops together and go slaughter these two people. Like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Um, furthermore, they're never described as individuals. They're mm. always described as a unity. Everything they do, they have power to shut up the sky. They have power to, to do, they have power. It's always they, never as individuals. And in fact, and I was listening to your translation because there's no English translation that does it that, that I'm aware I, of. I think I know where you're going to uh, mention. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The word mouth and the word body is mm-hmm. always is in the singular in Greek. Yep. So fire comes out of their mouth in the mm-hmm. Greek, not out of their mm-hmm. mouths. And then their body lies in the street of the great city for three and a half days. It does mm-hmm. not say their bodies. All of our English translations say bodies because, well, it makes there are two witnesses. To, yeah. And, yeah, and it's like, no, they're a unity. They're one. And this unity, of course, as the unity of the church, right? I pray that they may be one even as, as we are one. So they represent, in my opinion then, and I think there is a scholarly consensus on this for the most part, they represent all of Christendom. Now, I think we can extend that and say, well, we might even argue that they represent Old Testament and New Testament people of God, but that almost comes because we, we're forcing that into chapter 12 a little bit, the woman in chapter 12. Mm-hmm. But at least at this point in time, they're lampstands, lampstands are churches, and therefore they represent all Christians or the whole body of believers historically, not just then, but now also in those, they're you and me, they're, they're all of us. Well, even there, you have someone like a John, you know, writing and he wouldn't, he wouldn't make the distinction. Oh, there's the old Testament people of God. And then there's me. He's like, I'm just a Jew who is part of the people of God. Right. Yeah. I, I also, I mean, when I was reading through this, I'm looking at, uh, the first description in verse four, these are the two olive trees yeah. and the two lampstands. I, I had a question for you because I didn't look at it in the Greek. You know, when you use that conjunction and there, it could be two different things, or is it referring to the same thing? And so I, I, my question is, is the two olive trees referring to the, is it a description of the two lampstands? No, no. So it goes back to Zechariah chapter four. Okay. So um, let's go actually just go ahead and take a peek at Zechariah four for a second, because this this is central. So remember when we had Dana, um, Harris mm-hmm. on, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. And one of the arguments generally is, well, the Holy Spirit's like kind of absent from the book of Revelation. And Dana helped us a little bit saying, well, it's not really absent. Mm-hmm. I think in fact, that there's this fundamental assumption of the role of the Holy Spirit to, as the one who empowers God's people. That's just fundamentally assumed. So even though the centrality of the message is Christ and who Jesus is as the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain, and the people of God are following Jesus, we're imitators of Christ, which we'll discuss more as we proceed through, through our uh, studies. There's, there's this understood fact that the Holy Spirit is the empowering agent for God's people today. Uh, as we'll see that the, the dragon is the one that empowers the beast, so also it's the Holy Spirit that empowers uh, the people of God. So in Zechariah 4, uh, it begins by saying, you know, an angel who was speaking with me, verse 1, said, uh, awaken me from my sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And he said, well, I see a lampstand. Now, notice there's only one lampstand in Zechariah mm-hmm. 4. We won't go into all the details on this, but it says, with this bowl on the top of it, and it's seven lamps 
and on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on the top of it, and two olive trees by it. Now, the idea is, is, is olive trees means that's where the oil comes from to light the lamp. So that's why I say oh, okay. that there's, there's, there's a distinction between the olive tree and the lamp. The olive tree is the source of oil for the lamp itself. Now, Revelation has, of course, two olive trees and two lampstands. And the reason why is because the two olive trees and the two lampstands are just simply representatives of who the people of God are, and the people of God empowered for witness. And there's two of them because their witness is trustworthy. So even though Zechariah has only one lampstand, John has two because lampstand represents churches and represents the the witness of the church. So that, that's kind of the idea. Now, let me skip forward really quickly in Zechariah 6, by the way, because he says, uh, I said to the angel, uh, who is speaking, this is verse 4, uh, who is speaking with me, oh, who are these, my Lord? And the angel who was speaking answered and said to me, well, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. M- remember, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature often has like an angel saying, hey, what is this? And I'm like, I don't know what it is. You tell me. And mm-hmm. it's just the way of making conversation. So verse six, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who was the king, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I think that becomes this underlying theme that's central to the message of the book of Revelation, even though it's not actually explicitly stated. Let me see if I can clarify that. And that is, Zechariah 4 is clearly the foundational passage for this imagery of the two witnesses as two lampstands and two olive trees. And in Zechariah 4, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I think that's this underlying assumption that God's people are empowered to do the work of his ministry by the spirit, even though the experience, the spirit's not as explicit as we might want them to, to be. No, that's helpful because the one thing that I, I've, I think I learned really early on in seminary is how important the Old Testament is to interpret the New Testament. And I like put myself in the mm. front of the line to say, like, as a Gentile Christian, I just don't know my Old Testament yeah, well yeah, enough. Yeah. Um, right. And so even for me, like, I, I was immediately thinking when I read that passage about the two olive trees, I'm thinking like, okay, the prophets oftentimes use horticulture mm. language to describe God's people. So in John, in John's gospel, he picks up on this, especially notably yep. in something like on 15, right? Yeah, I am the vine, the vine branches. Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, is this also a description of horticulture language of the people of God? So even... Right. While I'm being a good New Testament student and thinking of the Old Testament, I just yeah. don't know the Old Testament well enough to yeah. for for Zechariah to automatically pop into that. So yeah, 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 yeah. yep. Uh, cool. Um, in verse three, we're we're back now into Revelation chapter eleven. In uh, verse three, we're uh, told that he is wearing a sackcloth. That's the thing he's wearing there. So what, oh, they, they are wearing, they, I'm sorry, sorry. They, they are, are rep, uh, even wearing, though they're, in, they're never, they're never individualized. They, the collective for them are, are wearing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what does this uh, represent? Cause I'm, I'm assuming it's not something good or there's a negative reason for why they are wearing sackcloth. Yeah. So it's really simple. Sackcloth, of course, most famously, John the Baptist, uh, sackcloth is associated with the attire of the prophets. It's associated with repentance and mourning. So there's a sense where these are prophetic witnesses going out to prophesy. I remember that's the contents of the scroll, John's prophesying. Uh, and they're uh, calling the nations to repentance. Mm. Okay. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. Verse 5, 
If yeah. anyone wants to harm them, a fire pours from the mouth and consumes their foes. That sounds super intense. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, it, it almost sounds like this wrathful, vengeful thing. A, a little like bit this also, dragon so. type thing happening. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. Which also, is interesting because yeah. this precedes chapter 12 where we actually see a dragon. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, so the two witnesses note first off that they suffer at the hands of their opponents. If anyone tries to harm them, means people are going to try to harm them. This is what's going to happen. Uh, and uh, then fire comes out of their mouths. That's, that's their ability to defend themselves. Well, the Old Testament background for this is a little bit uncertain, but it seems like it's most likely Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. Jeremiah 5, 14 says, quote, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. So in other words, the ability to, 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 to have fire come out of their mouths is just their prophetic words. Now, let's also make sure we're clear on this. It's not prophetic words like, oh, you bunch of people, you're going to go to hell. It's not, it's not that. It's prophetic words of the love of the gospel and the love of the kingdom spoken with the respect and love and mercy. But it's simply the, the words that we, that we respond with become the means by which we are defending ourselves. However, as we're going to find out in just a minute, that doesn't stop them from being killed. Hmm, okay. So these ones, they have authority. We read in verse six, mm -hmm. it won't rain. They'll turn water into blood, any plague as often as they wish they could do. And this really sounds yeah. like uh, I, I'm, I'm just reading Moses exile language. It's a Elijah type yeah. language uh, as well, right? Yeah. All right. So the two, the two witnesses, as I've argued, are, are all Christians throughout history. They're a collective. They're never defined as individuals. It's their body singular. There are two lampstands, which we know are churches. But if you're going to suggest that they're actual individuals, there are two theories that make the most sense. One is um, Enoch and Elijah, because mm -hmm. they never died. Mm -hmm. And it's and the book of Hebrews says it's appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. And these two witnesses are killed, so they have to come back. The second option is that it's Moses and Elijah, because the description in chapter 6 verse fits very well with Moses and Elijah. Elijah was able to shut up the sky for three and a half years so that it could not rain. Uh, Moses turned the water into blood, the Nile River, uh, and then Moses was able to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. The idea behind that is, remember Mo Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in the Gospels. They represent the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, the author or the, the author of the law. We we just associate Moses with the law. A common way of referring to the what we call the Hebrew Bible, or the Jewish Scriptures, or the or the old, the Christian Old Testament is the law and the prophets. Now, sometimes it's the law and the prophets and the writings. But the law and the prophets, like there's the law, the first five books, and the prophets are everything else. And Elijah is basically like the first of the prophets. And there were prophets before him, but the rise of the prophets during the ministry of the, the monarchy, Elijah is kind of like the first one. So we associate Elijah with the ministry of the prophets. So this is the law and the prophets. In other words, the idea about that is the two witnesses are fulfilling the Old Testament mission of God's people, therefore representing the law and the prophets and the totality of the Old Testament witness. Mm, Make sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we shouldn't expect that in a literal way in the same way right. that when we read ahead to chapter 16 and we see these bowls of wrath using right. plague language, we wouldn't expect to literally see uh, events of Egypt happen again. It's just, it's using Old Testament imagery because everyone would have understood that. Yeah, that's just, it's kind of like, you know, you go to a, a church gathering or whatever, a small group gathering, and somebody prays, and they start praying, and 
you listen like every other word is like a verse in the Bible. And then they pray mm-hmm. that verse in the Bible, right? That's just because they've been so saturated in the scriptures. They, yeah. they, they, they That's just the way they speak. It, it's this language of the scriptures flowing out, you know, right? And so it's the same idea. The two witnesses are flowing out with the language of the scriptures and John's using the scriptural language to describe them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the beast, he's going to make war. It, it yeah. will make war. It overcomes and it kills the two witnesses. Uh, we see this in uh, 11 verse seven. Yeah. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pits, which I'm assuming that's what we'll read about in chapter 20, it will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Right. That, that seems to come out of nowhere. <laughs> it comes totally out of nowhere. And in fact, the Greek actually says the beast. Now, mm. the significance of that is that when a when a thing is introduced the first time, like a, a character, a beast, or John, or um, the temple, or something of that nature, the first time the word the often doesn't accompany it because it's not a known thing. It's like I'm introducing to you now the beast. You, you don't know who the beast is. Let me tell you about it. Now, the next time they refers to the beast, they'll say the beast. You know the one I told you about a little while ago. The irony or the difficulty here is that this is the first time the word beast occurs, which Mm. means it shouldn't have the word the with it in Greek. Typically, the idea of of it being the beast in Greek means, you know, the one you know about. Mm. Now, if we're reading the book of Revelation, we're like, well, we don't know what this is. But it almost implies that John's readers already have this understanding that there's this beast creature character that opposes God's people and stands up. They, They know what it is. So for us. It stands out like, whoa, what an, we weren't expecting that. You know, describing the two witnesses, they're God's means through which the nation is going to be redeemed. They're, they have all these abilities like Moses and Elijah. And then all of a sudden, oh, the beast that comes up out of the war, out of the abyss will kill him. Like, oh, what? What do you mean the beast? Not only that, but it says that the beast has the power to overcome them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've read my book, um, Follow the Lamb, or, you know, we've discussed on, the, on this podcast as well, the word overcome is perhaps one of the most significant words in the book of Revelation, if not the most significant word. And a study of Revelation where you go through the uses of the word overcome is really, really profitable. You'll see each of the seven churches were told they were to overcome. And we're going to find out exactly what overcoming looks like in chapter 12. But now we're like, wait a minute, the beast overcomes them. It's it's shocking. Uh, it, it, it implies that the dragon wins, that the beast wins. And, you know, Jesus says the gates of hell will not overcome the church. Like, I thought this couldn't happen, but there's uh, the sense in which the two witnesses will ultimately be overcome by the beast. But notice, it doesn't happen until verse 7 says, when they have finished their testimony. So here's like the good news and the bad news. The bad news is, Vinny, there's a beast that's going to take your life. The good news is he's not going to do it until you finish your, your witness. The bad news is that might be tomorrow, right? I mean, who knows when we finish our testimony? So uh, quite, quite interesting. All right. A few minutes ago, we teased out that the word body isn't translated properly. Uh, so in verse eight, it says they're their bodies in our translations. Right, but it right. should be their body will lay in the street of the great city, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And these are called Sodom and Egypt. So once again, using famous Old Testament language and uh, identifications. Exactly. All right. So remember now, the, the key of the, of the two witnesses is that they have fire coming out of their mouths, which is the prophetic word. They speak God's word. And that's the means by which they um, defend themselves. And that's the means by which they 
uh, are, are active. They're called my two witnesses. Um, they will prophesy for 1,260 days. So that, that's their that's their modus operandi. They, they are God's witnesses. And it's the words that they speak, of course, the life they live and the way they live it and the character by which they live and all that good stuff also. Okay, now we find out that they have an enemy and that enemy is the beast. Now, we don't know who the beast is, but by the way, you and I don't know who the beast is yet as we're reading the book. Unless oh, I we know go who the fast beast forward is. ahead. What's that? I know who the beast is. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do too. So Bill uh, Belichick. No, yeah, it's the problem. I knew you were going to say that. And, and it's Al Davis and, <laughs> Sorry, his, Tom and Brady. his descendants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Tom Brady owns the Raiders. How do you say that? Exactly. The beast is conquering everything. <laughs> he does. He's got seven Super Bowl rings to prove it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's right. So here we go. We, we have these opponents then of the, of the two witnesses, namely the beast that we don't know who it is. Um, and but the naming of Sodom and Egypt actually appears are, are interesting because, for one, they represent two places where the people of God have suffered at the hands of their enemies. But one's a city, Sodom, and one's a country, a region, Egypt. Now, obviously, Egypt is the obvious one, right? Because Egypt is kind of even throughout the prophets. Remember the, the biblical story of the Egypt and of the Exodus is just kind of like reigns true. So even when they describe Babylon coming. Uh, and Babylon's going to come and conquer you. Babylon's coming in to conquer the people of Israel are, is in language describing Egypt or Pharaoh and things of that nature. So that imagery of Egypt as like the paradigmatic enemy that mistreats God's people is obvious. Um, but Sodom was actually also well known for its ill treatment of the, of the people of God. So the indication then is that Sodom was a place that was um, corrupt, uh, morally depraved, again, for reasons beyond what we typically think of sodomy and, and, and thought, sodomizing all, all the things like that there. Um, but, uh, and then Egypt is the place where God's people were persecuted. So the idea then is the suffering of the two witnesses accords with the suffering of the great prophets. Okay. It also describes the great city uh, where the, also their Lord was crucified. So we're assuming oh. Jerusalem. It, all right. So that, now that's really interesting, right? Because so it says their bodies lie, or their body lies in the great uh, in the streets of the great city, which is Sodom and Egypt. It's like, well, uh-huh. wait a minute, what city is Sodom and Egypt? Would you call Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Yeah. Well, well, that's yeah. that's an interesting take. It's Most strange, likely, yeah. the great city, of course, is Rome. Mm-hmm. That, so, but you're like, but Jesus wasn't crucified in Rome; he was crucified in Jerusalem. And the answer is, Rome is the beast. So we just kind of give away like little insight to a few episodes from now. Rome is the beast and Rome executed Jesus. Therefore, Jesus was executed in Rome, not necessarily the city, the empire. And mm-hmm. thus, even though it was Jerusalem, I think that's all, that's how it's being used here. So, yep. Okay. Uh, John then says that the body of the two witnesses remains unburied for three and one half days. So I, there's probably some okay. significance in being unburied as well as for the time. Yeah, yeah, there is. The unburying of them or refusing them to bury is, a, is an act of disgrace, mm-hmm. especially in a Jewish world, in a Semitic world, you were buried the day you died. Now, here's the interesting thing. That's this. The description of the two witnesses, as we're going to continue to see as we move forward in the book, the people of God are described in language that makes them look like Jesus. Mm-hmm. We are Jesus to the world. We are to imitate Jesus, to be his image bearers and all that good stuff there. So when it says that their body lies in the street of the great city, which is it's called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified, you can see the association of the two witnesses with the death of Jesus. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is, well, three and a half days, 
doesn't correspond with Jesus because Jesus was in the tomb for three days and these guys are unburied for three and a half days. And the half days, of course, is because, and we'll discuss this in a couple episodes, three and a half is a common designation for a period of time during which God's people suffer. It's half of seven. And I think in a few episodes, we're going to look at Daniel chapter nine, which is the, the seven years. It only comes from Daniel nine. It does not come from the New Testament. The book of Revelation only has three and a half years or three and a half. And the idea here of three and a half days is it's the period of time during which God's people suffer. So at the end of this three and a half days, they're resurrected uh, and they ascend into a cloud with heaven. This is where I like already we're hearing uh, chapter one language, right? Uh, like Jesus coming or with a, on, with a cloud, which is Daniel. This is Daniel chapter seven language. This is Acts chapter one. Like as, as a Bible reader, th- these are the types of things that I'm going to make connections to. But okay. is this what we should actually do? Yeah. And there's, there's even more than that. So first off, Jesus was the one who was dead and is alive forever and ever. And now the two witnesses are dead and yet they're alive. So they rise and ascend into heaven, just like Jesus dies and rises and ascends into heaven. Um, but also John says, uh, there was a great voice from heaven saying, come up here. Um, and it sounds like Jesus ascending into heaven in the presence of his enemies. Um, but there's also it says the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. The breath of life is what God gave Adam in Genesis 2. He gave mm. him the breath of life. It's also what God promises in Ezekiel 37. Uh, can these dead bones live? And it says, breathe on them. He gave them the breath of, of the spirit of God and they became living beings. So it's this resurrection language in accord with Jesus, but also in accord with the resuscitation of God's people. And then also in accord with the creation and formation of humanity. So this is the new creation. Hmm. In verse 13, it talks about some crazy, I mean, we would definitely call this apocalyptic language, yeah. even when we referred back to the, the Gospels and the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25. It says, in that hour, there was a great earthquake, which is apocalyptic language. Uh, a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed. Yes. Okay, so this is actually um, eschatological reversal. What, what does that mean? All right. mm. End times reversing of things. So. The 7,000 reminds us, of course, of the, of the ministry of Elijah. Mm-hmm. Remember, the, the two witnesses are described in language of Moses and Elijah. During the time of Elijah, Elijah's like, I'm the only one left. And God's answer is, no, I've kept 7,000 who have mm-hmm. not bowed, bowed their feet to Baal. Um, so now you have 7,000 that are destroyed, but only 7,000. So back at the time of Elijah, only 7,000 were, were preserved. And now here, only 7,000 are taken, are taken away. The rest, however, are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. And this is the key to the entire book. And it, it almost sounds like, like it's anticlimactic because the whole point of the story that I've been arguing is that we're waiting for the redemption of the nations. When are the nations going to be restored and be redeemed? The answer is, well, when the two witnesses are raised, after the church has finished its ministry, the people of God have finished their ministry, the, the beast comes up and kills them. They lay in the street for three and a half days just to associate them with the death and resurrection of Jesus. They go up into heaven. That's awesome. There's an earthquake. That's the sign of God's presence, right? A theophany. God, God's being present here. And 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake, but the rest are terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is what's on the scroll. How is God going to bring redemption to the nations? How is God going to bring them repentance? And the expression, they were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, is used in the book of Revelation to express a positive thing. 
Mm-hmm. This, this isn't they're like fearing God, being terrified. Their fear results in giving glory to God. The nations, the, you know, besides the 7,000 that were killed, the rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. That's why when we go to Revelation 21 and 22, the nations walk by the light of the new Jerusalem because God's people are faithful and fulfill their mission. And the nations are now, um, I guess you'd say, converted, redeemed, whatever you want to say about that. And here's the end of the story. How does God redeem the nations? It's not through wrath. It's through the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. When we lay down our lives for the nations, the nations are redeemed. Hmm. Yeah. It's go. interesting. We're reading this passage, and this does seem like the climax. Like if, if we didn't have yeah. chapter and verse divisions, it would seem like this is where yep. the story should end, right? Exactly. So David Barr, mm. uh, who's a uh, not well-known a scholar, kind of in evangelical circles, but a phenomenal scholar of the book of Revelation, he actually argues that, that there's three stories in the book of Revelation. You have the first story of John on Patmos. You have the second story of John going up into heaven and he, him seeing the scroll. And then the third story is chapter 12. It's not a third story. I think he is missing it. It makes sense because the second story seems to end. I mean, especially at the end of chapter 11, it says, um, the kingdom of the world in verse 15 has become the, the kingdom of our Lord, of his Christ. They'll reign forever and ever. You know, uh, verse 17 says, uh, oh Lord God Almighty, you who were and who are, right? Um, not it never it doesn't say the one who is to come. Mm-hmm. You've taken your great power, you've begun to reign. So this is the end. There's, there's no question that we've reached the end. Remember, the end of the seven seals, the end of the seven trumpets, and the end of seven the bowls all take us to the end of the story. So it certainly appears like we're at the end, but chapter 12 and 13 and following are actually going to fill an important role for this story. So we're going to go back in time in chapter 12 to give more detail because here's the reality. There's a beast that comes up out of the abyss that makes war with the saints, with the two witnesses. What's that all about? So 12 and 13 are not giving us a new story. It's giving us more details about that war that happens in chapter 11, verse 7. But it does absolutely sound like we've come to the end and because we essentially have come to the end. Mm. Wow. Yeah. All right. So. We're going to end the text there. So we'll pick up next time yeah. uh, looking at the seventh uh, trumpet. But I, I think this is definitely one of those chapters where it just becomes mm-hmm. like intellectual chess match, not even a chess match. Just it, it's like the intellectualism of let's try to decode who these mm-hmm. people right, are right. And, and, and trying to figure that out. One thing that I know that you do is you're always looking at the ethical, the why it matters side of things. Mm-hmm. So when we look at chapter 11, that, you know, verses one through 18, what kind of ethical things can we drive from that? Uh, can I actually use the word missional instead of okay. ethical? Uh, missional means God's called us to do this mission. Obviously, when we do the mission, there are ethical implications doing it this way. But the mission is to make God known. That's the biblical story. God's going to be made known among the nations. The nations mm-hmm. are going to be redeemed. And what I think the missional call then is that God's people are the ones who prophesy, speak the word of God. And again, it's really important, even though the word prophesy is used and it actually frames the description of the two witnesses, they will prophesy and, uh, and they're called two witnesses and it says they will prophesy. We have to be careful to think, oh, that means our spoken word. Mm-hmm. I, I've said it this way, you know, uh, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and your life, and most people don't read the first four. And the, further, the idea behind that is, People are not going to listen to our witness unless they respect us as persons. Mm. 
And we have to give them a reason even to listen to us as persons. If they don't respect us, if they don't like us, or if we're blabbering things that nobody wants to hear about, condemning people for whatever, or spewing hatred and animosity, um, or anger or vitriol, no one's even going to listen to us. So it's really important that there's, a, there's this character of the church. And I think we can even go one step further in finding out that what caused the early church to grow was the fact that they were going to the garbage heaps and taking the babies out that were mm-hmm. thrown away yeah. and then starting orphanages. That they were taking in the widows that no one would care for because they had no husbands, no sons, no daughters. And they're saying, hey, we'll care for you. Mm-hmm. Right? And they were, they were doing all these things. You know, hospitals were getting started by churches and the Red Cross gets started by Christians. And that Christians were making a difference in the world. And that people went, hey, okay, so tell me what's this stuff all about? You know, why are you guys doing these things? I think it's that the missional activity of God's people. And the key is, is that we are faithfully, sacrificially, lovingly laying down our lives for our enemies. We are killed. And because we are killed, maybe literally, maybe not, you know, the irony is that from what we know in church history, the apostle John, who, who maybe wrote this book, wasn't actually killed mm-hmm. for the sake of the gospel. He, he died eventually, right? But he wasn't actually killed. He was, you know, tradition is a, he was, you know, boiled in oil and that didn't kill him, whatever that might be, might be the situation. He wasn't actually killed. But the point of that is Christians are willingly, sacrificially laying down their lives. We're taking up our crosses and following Jesus. Okay. Now, I got a blog as you and I are recording this on Friday, Vinny. You know, normally we're a couple of weeks ahead of time. And right now, I think we're three days ahead of time. We're on Friday because, you know, you've had COVID this week, so we couldn't record earlier in the week. Uh, and this comes out on, mo- on a Monday. So if you're listening to this, you know, somewhat after it releases on December 11th, obviously you could be listening to this at any time. You know, we're recording this uh, three days ago. I got a, a blog coming out on Monday also, just December 11th. And the title of the blog at this point in time, as I finish editing it here this afternoon, will be Challenging the Church to be the Church in the Midst of War. And I've said this plenty of times on, my, on the live stream episodes. I've said this in several blogs uh, recently, and that is that the church does not look like the church. We don't look like Jesus' people. We don't look like people who love our neighbors. We don't look like people who love our enemies because we're advocating for war. Now, I'm not even arguing at this point in time to say, oh, well, the war is justified or not justified. Israel has to defend itself. There's all, all kinds of discussions there. And I encourage you to go to our live streams on the YouTube channel. Uh, for, for the continued discussion there. And, and I'm going to have an interesting conversation, as Vinny knows, on Tuesday night, December 12th, mm-hmm. uh, which is epi- it's actually live stream num- number nine. It's, it's out of order because we had to reschedule. But live stream number nine is a discussion with Michael Brown. And I think he's going to take this side. I'm not sure, but I don't want to put words in his mouth. But we can say Israel's justified in defending themselves. That's fine. But the point of that is the church should be the one advocating that says peace and justice is best for all. Violence begets violence. All Israel has done for 75 years against Gaza is inflict violence. And every time more bombs come over the wall, they're both wrong. They're mm-hmm. both condemnable. They're both atrocious acts. In fact, they're both can be labeled as terrorists. You know, capturing uh, um, Gazans and, and imprisoning them for nine months without a trial. You know, these are the, the prisoner exchanges. They're, they're civilians. They're not criminals. They didn't do anything wrong. So there's, there's all kinds of stuff to be said about both sides there. But the point of that is, is to love Israel and Israelis, to love Gazans and Palestinians, whether they're Christians, Muslims, or Jews, is to advocate for a peace and justful solution. We should be leading the charge at this. And we're not. We're the one voice in the world, one of the few voices in the world, 
advocating for the war and the annihilation, which is, I've been on several webinars this week, as you know, Vinny, that a leading world authorities, global authorities saying, this is genocide. And yet the Christians are saying, oh, it's totally justified. Totally, it's like, it doesn't matter if it's justified or not. It's wrong. Mm. Children are dying. How many children have to die before we say, okay, they've gone too far? Because mm-hmm. we've now reached 7,000. Mm-hmm. 7,000 children. And that does not count the ones that are under the rubble who haven't been counted yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll, one last thing, Vinny, is I'm on my mm-hmm. diatribe right now. Sorry about this. I mentioned this on one of my live streams. That is, there's a new acronym that should not have to exist. WCNSF. Wounded child, mm. no surviving family. Oh my gosh. Right? This is what's going on in Gaza. Now, that child grows up, side note here, that child grows up and finds out why they are orphans. Are they not going to become radicalized? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not ending Hamas. You're just creating another atrocity. And why is the church not speaking up, especially when it's our bombs? Because mm-hmm. we're, you know, Congress d- debated last night. They didn't, I think it passed the House, but it didn't pass the Senate, a $14.2 billion. It's, it's $14.3 billion total. But $100 million is going to the Palestinians for, for relief. $14.2 billion is going to Israel for arms and for How weapons. Of us. Yeah. So it's like this... This is an application of this, you know, and we can apply this to so many other issues. Obviously, this is the one that, that's current um, as we're recording. So, man, okay, <sighs> heavy stuff. Man, I just got, stuff. While we were talking, I just got another notification about uh, the BBC. Or the BBC is talking about how. Uh, oh gosh, I brought it up too. Was the headline "U.S. vetoes UN Security Council vote on Gaza ceasefire"? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, the world is calling for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And the United States is saying, no, we won't let it happen. Mm-hmm. The world is, and the church is backing the United States because yeah. we think Israel's God's chosen people. It's like, I don't care for a second. Let's just throw the theology out the, minute, out the window for a minute. Let's just say Israel's God's chosen people. That doesn't give them right to commit genocide. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Committing genocide is not good for them. It's only going to have more hatred against them and more bombs being lobbed over. Move the wall to the to the to Beersheba. Move the wall south. It doesn't matter. The, the, it's just got farther for the bombs to go. And and Iran's eventually going it, to. This is not good. Yeah. You yeah. can't tell me that you love Israel and that you're approving of their genocide of the people of Gaza and that that somehow reflects the 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 theology, the ethics of Jesus. I, I don't understand this. Yeah. Or the and two witnesses. While we are. You know, wherever you're at on that divide on uh, theologically how you see Israel, we are called to love Israel as Israelis. I, I'm yeah. not called to love any nation. I'm I'm called to love peoples and nations. Yeah, so true. I am called to love Israelis in the same exact kind of way that I am called to love Palestinians in the same way I'm called to love Mexicans and Canadians and right. Swedes and whoever. And uh, we get so wrapped up in the political not discourse. Not the Italians though, right? Not the, the Italians. You know, we, yeah. we did bring pizza, but... Uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Is that an Parmesan. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. 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 Anyway. yeah. <laughs> now we're just going to get, uh, I would say it's not cultural appropriation because we're both Italians, but uh, yeah, anyway. yeah. We both, you have a lot more Italian blood than I. I'm 25% Italian. You're, aren't you 100% Italian? No, no, I'm not 100. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm only 25, but uh, no, yeah, um, absolutely. And I and again, I did a live stream. You can find this on the DeterminedTruth.com uh, homepage. Look, click on the YouTube tab, or go to YouTube and click on on the search for Determined Truth. Like the page, subscribe to it, all that good stuff. Leave comments. Um, all that stuff helps. But we did a live live stream. Number 12 was recorded where I addressed the theology of the, of the land and of the people. Mm-hmm. So I, I addressed that specifically. And then number 11 was kind of this plea of what I just said here. Why are, why are we advocating for war? This doesn't make any sense. And I'll do another one 13 uh, in the weeks to come uh, following up on this. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, your book uh, for these brothers of mine, mm-hmm. that's almost a decade old, right? It probably is. Let's see. Um, I, I want to say it was a 2014 or 2015. That you I think it. there were 13, 15, 17, if I'm not, um, if I'm not mistaken, something like, I remember they're odd numbered years. So it, okay, I okay. it might be 15 then. Uh, but okay. honestly, man, you're, you're at the point where you might need to have yeah. a second edition with some updated information in there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's a theological text. I hope that yeah, I guess so, yeah. as far, as far as like, whether we do or not, whether we do another book in terms of, um, what's going on currently right now yeah. the time is appropriate it's just can you get this published quickly enough yeah yeah, yeah. so anyway all right everyone um, well hey hopefully yeah. you enjoyed this and helps us just learn how to get out of the text and then reflect on the real world so next week we'll be uh going into chapter 12 and we'll be able to start looking at uh the woman and the dragon and yeah satan Dragons. ancient serpent of old and so uh, yeah it gets really into the hey i guess it's all all been meaty but it's different kind of meat yeah yeah so, hey Vinny, uh stay positive just don't test positive Look at that. That should be my uh, mantra. That's going to be my new, yeah, yeah. Uh, my new uh, sign off in life. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, Shayla can test positive if she wants, but I'm not sure if you guys want to have any more kids or not. So, no, it, here's the thing. She's going crazy because my son has been at my mom's house all week. And so she, I, I've all, all these people uh, are texting me like coworkers, like, oh, you and Shayla get a, uh, a romantic, yeah. you know, staycation. The whole time she's just like, I miss Mateo. She doesn't care about me at all. She, <laughs> she wants to be with her son. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would want to be with your son too if I were her. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well played. All right, anyone. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you guys next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.